The Newsman's Breath The Newsman's Breath, just a harbinger of death. Constructing narratives with false comparatives. Corporate goals, funding logic holes. Population dividing. Conspiracy confiding. Distorting truth. Radicalizing youth. Their greed, trumping our need. Environmental destruction for mining construction. Wage exploitation with no contemplation. The same old story. Power and glory. Our only answer? Revolutionary fervor. Rioting on the streets. Protest meets. Public doxing. Twitter mocking. Grudge harboring. Guillotine sharpening. Wealth distribution. Billionaire contribution. A social awakening to a generational failing. A new world order is needed. Led by those less conceited. Those who believe in humanity. Who are blessed with some semblance of sanity. People who plant a tree that they won't live to see. People who care about the children, regardless of their colour or origin. People who choose life over stuff, who can actually have enough. Is this idealistic dreaming, or realistic future scheming? What's the alternative? To agree with the affirmative. To accept the status quo. To look by. To look away, saying go. In my name, invade and kill. In my name, do your will. It can end if we try, if we are willing to fight and die, to stand up and speak our minds, to break society from its mental confines. How? Act now. Write a letter. March on a population centre. Rally support. Take the corrupt to court. Speak out. Get clout. Subvert the narrative. Join a collaborative. Just do something. Because right now, you're doing nothing. So, that was a poem called The Newsman's Breath from the book Bound to the Wings of a Butterfly. And it's out now as a paperback, ebook, audio, and hardcover. Once again, I'm going to be sharing and talking and promoting it. Um, it's received the number one new release for Australian and Oceana poetry. I'm getting a bunch of um, positive comments and feedbacks, um, a bunch of great reviews. People are just responding to this in a way that I've not seen before. It's, it's incredible. And since writing it, a whole bunch of more have poetry has come, which I'm super excited about. So that's Bound to the Wings of a Butterfly. I'll chuck a link down below and I'll remind you about it at the end of the episode. But I'm going to be starting the episodes with a poem from the book that relates to the topic. And, and today I want to talk about uh, <laughs> being forced to isolate in the home. My, my wife has come down with COVID and where I live in Victoria, Australia, if a close contact comes in, comes uh, down with COVID, everyone in that household has to isolate for seven days as well, regardless of if you test positive or not, regardless of if you've got symptoms or not, whatever. So I am forced to be at home, in the home. I can't leave for seven days. I can't train. I can't do work. I can't do anything. Thankfully, the government does provide a level of financial support. Um, we're yet to see if we will get that or qualify. Hopefully we do. But the money isn't really the problem for me. It's the mental state. I am concerned that I'll go insane. <laughs> but I wanted to sort of suggest the response that I've had to it. When I, when it first tested positive, I'm like, okay, this is going to suck. And I'm not going to lie, the thought like of how honest do we be went through my mind. Do I 
just ignore it because there's so many cases in the population anyway that one extra case probably won't make much of a difference. Um, thankfully, maybe not thankfully, I don't know, my wife's conscience and a little bit of introspection revealed to us that we should do, you know, quote unquote, the right thing and isolate. Fair enough. But it got me thinking, it's like, okay, how can I, how can I take the silver lining of this? What is the silver lining? So, all right, I get to stay. I get to, I get to stay home. I get to be with my family for seven days. I get to have a week off work. What does that give me? Okay. It gives me extra time to do my online work. It gives me extra time to write and record poetry. It gives me extra time to do certain things. So my goal over these next seven days is to get a kid's meditation course up, a 10, 10 or plus so day insight timer kid's meditation course up, as well as another course on Skillshare talking about creating poetry, poetry creation for beginners, for the mental health, all of that good stuff based on Bound to the Wings of a Butterfly. So hopefully I'll be able to get those two projects done over these next seven days, in addition to spending a bunch more time with my family, which is always good. I've got a well-established home gym, so I'm going to cap my days with meditation and exercise every day. So this morning I did a bunch of cardio on the rowing machine, on the air bike, um, on the punching bag, and I was dripping with sweat by the end of it. Felt good. So it's like, let's try and like look at the positive. But it got me thinking. It's like, when I, when I used to teach, I used to be a high school psychology teacher. And one of the topics in year 11 psychology at the time was to talk about morality. How do people form morality, um, both in terms of in general as an adult, but also over the ages, as in like kids through adolescence, through adulthood. And one of the theories was Carl Bird's, Carl Bird's? I don't know, I can't remember, it's a long time ago, um, theory of morality. And it suggested that when a, when a baby is born or a young kid, they look at what's right and wrong based on the rewards and punishments they get. So if you do something and someone gives you a chocolate, that, that behavior, that action is good. If you do something and someone smacks you, that behavior is bad. You're learning through punishment and reward. Simple enough. Then it, that's levels one and two. And then you go to levels three and four, which is your sort of peer-based responses. And you sort of judge morality based on what is good and bad, based on the, the laws, based on the peer groups. So if your peer group is doing something, that's how you judge what's right or wrong. And if it's, if the law is correct. So according to the law, based on this example, for example, me, me, you know, reporting that I have to stay in isolate, that's me using the morality of the law as a basis. That's levels three and four. Levels five and six is when you're going sort of beyond that. It's, it's looking at the morality of the self. Sorry, before I go on to that, level three and four could also be like a religious or social group basis. So like if, if your religion or the, the club or the tribe suggests to do something or these are the norms of the tribe, that's what you follow. And level five and six is beyond that. It's turning to the self. It will potentially cause you to break with your peer group, to break the law based on what you believe to be right. So the classic example would be, uh, the Nazi Germany. The, 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 cultural, the social, the country, the law suggested that you should act and do certain things to certain groups of people. However, there were people that looked at that and was like, mm, this isn't good. And they pushed back and they didn't. And that might have caused them to face terrible consequences themselves. 
basically someone at a level five and six morality is uh, looking at things through their own perspective. They're, they're holding their own inner truth as the highest form of morality. And this typically comes from a lot of introspection, a lot of deep thought, a lot of meditation. And not everyone attains that level five and six morality. And it doesn't always occur in a lot of things. And if you, if your internal morality, you might be at level five and six, but if your internal morality is in line with the laws of wherever you live, then you might never have to choose to express it. But what you see, um, when there's social conflict, what you see in the world, and a lot of, I think, the, the, the arguments and the disagreements and the protests and all of that sort of stuff is people pushing back and going, Hey, this doesn't seem right. Even though it's the law, even though the majority of the people in the world, in the country, in the, in the state, in the town, whatever, believe a certain thing, I don't. And it's wrong and I'm going to push for it. So that's why you get people, for example, debating either way on the abortion laws. Or either way on certain discrimination laws or equal pay laws or, you know, transgender issues or sexuality issues or veganism, all of these sort of things. People have certain opinions, certain beliefs, certain ideals that, that they, that they will push for and risk going to jail for, you know, and with, with, um, war and conflict and a whole bunch of stuff happening in, um, with the Russia and the Ukraine situation that just terrible stuff keeps coming out. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of things to question. Well, what is right and what is wrong? One of the debates that I have in my mind, and you know, the reason this is sort of on my mind is, well, I'm forced to, based on the law of my country and the social etiquette of my country, to isolate. That's what I'm forced to do. If I was to be like, hey, got COVID, should be staying at home, but I'm not going to do it. I now have to lie. I have to be deceitful, even if I think that. It's no big deal. Even if I think that, hey, if I go outside, there's so much COVID in the in the area anyway that me isolating does nothing or, you know, that sort of thing, right? Now, I'm not saying that I feel that way. I'm not saying that I don't feel that way. It's more just the the, uh, the breakdown or the discussion or the, the, the look at the morality side of things and the fact that governments, societies, communities push us to do things that we don't necessarily want to do. In Australia, we were forced, not forced, very strongly encouraged to have two, two of the, um, the vaccine shots. And now we're being very strongly encouraged to have a third or even a fourth one. And a survey came out that by the government that's like, hey, did you feel coerced or pushed? And it's like, yeah, I certainly definitely did feel coerced or pushed. Because if, if we didn't, there was a risk. Uh, that you couldn't work. There was a risk that you couldn't go into certain places. It's like creating this 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 second class citizen sort of approach to those who chose not to get vaccinated. Now, no one was being forced to vaccinate, as in held down and you know pinned and vaccinated against their will, quote unquote. But if you say, "Hey, you can't work now. Hey, you can't go into these shops now. Hey, your life is not uh, going to be the same as it would have normally been unless you take this vaccine." there's there's degrees of force right like <laughs> if if someone really a lot bigger than you holds a fist up to you and says i'm going to punch you in the face unless you give me your money and you choose to give that person the money well they didn't take the money out of your pocket did they they didn't beat you up and just rob your corpse but they very strongly encouraged you to give them the money anyway Potentially false analogy, potentially, you know, obviously there's a whole deep level of things here, but that's not really, like I said, not the point. The point isn't the the governmental response or the efficacy of it or what they did with the lockdowns or any of that. It's the 
for me, the curiosity is my own internal compulsion and response. So I'm forced to isolate. I don't even have COVID, but I'm forced to isolate. And it's like, well, what is my instant reaction? My instant internal reaction is a variety of different things. Thoughts go through my mind. Do I lie? Do I own it? Do I make the best of it? How do I guarantee my mental state? Is my mental state more important than the, quote, safety of society? Is me isolating actually helping anything? Because, yeah, if it is keeping people safe, then maybe that adds more weight. But now I'm questioning the validity of those statements. Like I said, I don't necessarily believe or disbelieve any of this. It's the thoughts that went through the mind. It's the questioning. It's the morality. And it goes back to that uh, theory of, of, of morality that I was talking about. Most people sit at a level three to four. Most people. And that's not my subjective opinion. Like the studies that did this moral relativity scale puts most people on most things at a level three or a four. I.e. they're following what society says. They're following what the law says. And that is what's right. Why is this behavior right and that behavior wrong? Well, it's against the law to do that behavior. Therefore, it's right. But there's certain things that but most people will consider themselves to be a level five or six when you te- teach them or tell them this because it's like, yeah, of course I'll do my own thing. And for some things, a lot of people do sort of look at that. Take uh, drug use, for example. In a lot of places, the only real drugs that you're allowed to take legally, uh, recreationally, is alcohol, um, alcohol basically. But despite that, a lot of people will smoke weed or will do MDMA or harder drugs. And even though they're breaking the law, and even though they probably wouldn't like drug dealers around them, and they wouldn't like the the, the downstream effects of drug fiends. You know, my, my father was a drug dealer, a drug fiend, and the people that came over to the house were erratic, neurotic, crazy people, and it was terrifying. But most drug users, i.e. casual drug users, people that smoke a bit of weed or, you know, do some do a couple of lines at the club aren't those people. So there's a bit of morality bit of gray area, bit of nuance to be looked at there because they're going against the law, but perhaps because their social group is okay using, they're okay. So you could sort of argue that that's a level three or four. But when does it become a level five or six decision? Well, some people looked at what people were doing in relation to the COVID stuff and were like, yeah, I'm not getting vaccinated no matter what. I will sell my house. I, I know people who have sold their house to be able to maintain themselves so that they didn't have to get the vaccine and just simply hoping that they will ride out this uh, restriction on work. Fair enough. <sighs> it's just challenging. It's, it's hard. And it's, it's led to some interesting decisions in my life. A, when I was younger, a friend of mine assaulted someone, sexually assaulted someone. And that caused me to end the friendship. And that ending of the friendship caused me to end the friendship with all of the other friends from that friendship group because I couldn't stomach that behavior. And I sort of highlighted it to the other people and they didn't want a bar of it. So because of my choices, my morality, it cost me my social group. And that's had ramifications for years. It's led me to feel isolated and alone and confused. It's led me to go down a path of introspection and into the writing and everything that I'm doing now. It's one of these core decisions. 
I don't regret making the decision, but that decision has a large cost, a larger cost than I realized at the time. But it was a level, f- it was a level five, six decision. I mean, yes, technically you could argue that it's following the law, but the, it wasn't a matter of persecution. It was going against the social group. It was going against the people at the time. It's rough. <sighs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure the point of this podcast, other than these, these are the thoughts that, that have, have, have arisen for me. And that poem, The Newsman's Breath, it's back to my same bugbear. The, the social media, the news cycle, all that sort of stuff is highlighting things all of the time. But it's also highlighting stuff that does actually bother us, that does actually influence us, that does cause issue. Okay, it causes issue. All right. What are we going to do about it? What can we do about it? Knowing that when we take action, that too will feed back into the same feedback news cycle loop. I struggle. I struggle to have opinions on most things because I struggle with um, moral, moral relativity and stepping outside my own subjective base, as well as a inability to have a, have a strong opinions because maybe it's a lack of self-esteem, maybe it's a, a realization that there's many sides. Who knows? I just know that it's very hard to step outside of that. There's this, there's this sort of thing that I used to, to suggest to students, this idea that, you know, when you see two people arguing, not you, you're not really invested in it, but you see two people arguing and they both have opinions. They both have people backing them up. They both have evidence. They're both very passionate, but you can see it from one perspective and they're right. But then you can put yourself in the other person's perspective and they are also right. Both people arguing based on the evidence that they're suggesting are right or at least are somewhat right. But they're adamant. Each party is adamant that they're right and the other person's wrong. But from the external perspective, you can see that both are right and both are wrong. You can see a third or fourth or fifth perspective highlighting even more truth. You can see the nuance that the people in the argument can't. But from there, there's a logical step to take going, huh, if that's the case with other people arguing, it's probably most likely the case whenever I'm arguing i.e. whenever I have an opinion. Then it's the next step to, from there to go, well, how can I have an opinion? This is something that I've been considering for years and I'm not sure how to move past it because my default goes, it's like, okay, well, I'll trust my instincts. But if you look into the research, instincts aren't always right. I know from my martial arts perspective, <laughs> instincts can be quite wrong, untrained instincts, that is. If someone's on top of you and you try and bench press, put, push them away, which what every guy does when they start jujitsu, they instantly get armbarred. It is a terrible move to make. And yet everyone does it because it's like, oh, someone's on me, push away. And the same thing with your own instincts. Humans have an instinct to trust their tribe. You know, it's evolutionary. I.e., trust the people that look, sound, act, and come from where they come from, right? There's very similar studies to suggest that we do this naturally. You put two kid, you put two groups of kids, one in blue tops, one in yellow tops. That's the only difference. Say nothing. And the blue topped kids will gravitate together and the yellow topped kids will gravitate together. It happens. If you, you, um, challenge people or show them a, a image that's so quick that their conscious mind can't pick it up, but their unconscious mind does of people with different skin tones and skin colors. 
They will associate positive and negative emotions with them based on the skin tone shown and the skin tone that they have. There is a direct correlation there. If you if you show a image or a moving uh, video of a humanoid figure that is close to human but not perfect, we fall into this uncanny valley thing and we dislike it with a passion. It creeps us out. And there's an argument that suggested we evolved that uh, as a way to, uh, or due to, or because of, or in some capacity relating to humanoids that we grew up, that we evolved alongside, causing us to genocide them. Who knows which way the causality went on that one? Point is, like, sorry, we'll keep. I'll keep going with some more examples. If you show people a video of a of a car smash, car crash, but you say you show them the video and you say, what was the speed going when those two cars bumped? into each other? Or what was the speed going when those two cars crashed into each other? Or what was the speed going when those two cars destroyed each other? Whatever, like whatever that word, descriptive word is, it changes the speed that people predict. I.e. just the way you prompt them in the question changes their subjective viewing of the incident. Yeah, that's a fact. Like you can look up, you can look all these studies and stuff up in psychology. If you if you show someone a photoshopped image of them as a child and sort of construct a narrative around it, a large percentage of people will believe that that actually happened, that, that, that you can implant the false memory. If you put a person in a group and ask them to judge this, the, the relative shape of lines, so here's line A, here's a line over here on one side of the board, which line is the same size? A, B, or C. If you're in a group and five people before you say it's line B, even though it's obvious that it's line A, lots of people will choose line B to go along with the crowd. Okay? And there's variations of this study that say if you've got like a supporter backing you up, you're likely to go down, a whole variety of different things. But the point is, is that people will change their beliefs based on what other people are saying. There's other studies that look at the impact of a perceived authority figures of various various factors influencing behavior the 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 classic example is of the the um the shock experiments in which they got a a perceived authority figure to say hey we're doing a psychology experiment shock the person these are real electric shocks um it's all part of the experiment go along with it and the majority of people would have shocked the participant to death had it been real now, obviously, there's variations and all this sort of stuff, but the it's, the, the fact is, is that if there's a perceived authority figure telling you to do something, people do it. And the last experiment that sort of goes into this is the the, the um, Milgram's Prism experiment that talks about when you get two groups of people, put them into a, into a mock prison. One group is the guards, one group is the prisoners. Give them some perceived uh, authority status things, so like some glasses and uniform, etc., people drift into those roles naturally these people over here become more sadistic more cruel these people over in the prisoners become more subservient more mentally unwell i.e people change their roles based on uh, arbitrary designations they're exactly the same beforehand but you put them in a role you say that you're this you get the authority figure you get the consensus and it changes people now there's there's studies after studies after studies of variations on all of these things and more point is if we bring it back to what I was saying, all of these things are impacting on my mind. I know they are. I've studied it. I've looked into it. I can sometimes even see it happening in real time, but I can't quite stop it. 
The thing I've noticed happening with me is is this post-justification. I read a book um, by the guy who wrote the Dilbert comics, and the book was called Win Bigly. And he, in it, he's talking about why Trump at the time, I think he wrote it in 2016, I don't know, but he, he was talking about why Trump won. And he was one of the first sort of mainstream people to come out predicting a Trump win, not supporting Trump, but predicting a Trump win. And he was looking at it from a hypnosis perspective. This guy is a very good comic artist, relatively funny, whatever, and also a hypnotist. And he, he said that most, this is the thing that stuck with me. Most people believe that we're sort of 90% rational, 10% irrational, but he believes that we're flipped. We are a, a thin guise of rationality, 10% of rationality over 90% irrationality. And what, what often happens is, is due to things working in the background, different techniques, different sort of things that a master manipulator like Trump is, you know, and he is that, he was able to become the president. So he's obviously good at manipulating the media, manipulating people. And I say manipulation not necessarily as a bad way, but as a, uh, in the sense of being able to get what he wants to change opinions, he can do it. And what, what this book was suggesting was that people make decisions and then justify their reasons after the fact. It's like post-justification. And you'll notice that the more you meditate yourself, I'm noticing it with me, it's like I'll find myself in the process of doing something and then I see my mind making up justifications. It's like, oh, why did I choose to get high? Why did I choose to drink? Why did I choose to go exercise? Why did I say, do, act in a certain way? And it's sort of like I do it and then I justify the reasons after the fact. Oh, I needed a break. Oh, I've been working harder, all of this sort of stuff. Whereas what you think happens, or what sort of you just naturally assume happens, your intuition is, is like, okay, I've had a rough day, therefore I'm going to have a drink. But often you'll have the drink and then you'll justify it after the fact going, yeah, I've, I've had a rough day, that's why I'm drinking. Multiple examples of this down a whole bunch of different paths, you know, asking someone out, how you act on a date, how you, you speak to people, how you respond to anger. Oftentimes we just act and then we work out how we're acting. So the... The, the the reason I'm saying all of this is that when I have an opinion, it's hard for me to actually it's hard for me to actually sort of decide how I'm doing and what I'm doing because it's like okay, where is my justification coming from? How do I know this for certain? How do I know that this is right? How can I how can I set that boundary up if I know that if I've got an opinion there that likely it is wrong for a bunch of reasons that if I was only a little bit more detached, a little bit more separate, a little bit more step backed, I could have seen it. It's hard for me to move past that. So so then it's like, okay, how do I know how to act or respond? How can I judge it? And I see other people online and in person having very strong opinions about everything. And it's hard for me to know why. I It, it feels like a character flaw, but it also feels like a benefit because it, me, it enables me to sort of be detached. But it also means that I'm separate because it's like, oh, what do you think about this? It's like, well, here's both sides. Or sort of like I become the devil's advocate, always arguing against other people just for curiosity. It's like, why do you think this? Well, why do you think this? There's that detached curiosity that I'm sort of engaged with. But it leaves me to, to not be able to know how I feel about a lot of things because it's like you can always get more information. If we fly it all the way back to the COVID stuff, it's like, yeah, there's an endless amount of information on this. Bring it back to any social topic, any issue, any anything. You can always get more information. Thus, how can you decide? I don't know. And then, then my, my, my default answer, my, my working answer, like, what do I do about this is, okay, introspect, 
look at how I'm feeling as detached as I can and have a contemplation session on morality. Have a contemplation session on morality and think to myself, it's like, okay, from, from a detached perspective, not in the heat of the moment, how do I want to act? How do I want to be? And that can give me sort of a guidance on what to do. So, for example, if I'm not sure how to respond, I will introspect and see how I'm feeling, try and get to the core of that, try and dig down into the core, look at myself and go, hmm, how am I actually feeling about this? What am I, what am I truly feeling? Well, not my default instant, instantaneous response. What's, what's, what's at the core here? Look at it deeply, not just act on impulse. And then secondly, have a little bit of a morality, have a little bit of a stepped back look and go, okay, I want to make sure that I'm treating people as I want to be treated. All right. I, want, I believe in a long-term uh, progressive um, improvements. I believe that self-improvement is key. I believe in, in ownership. It's like, let's look at these key traits. Okay. How, how does someone that believes that sort of thing from a detached perspective without having too emotion, too much emotionality in it, how would they act? And then I try and marry those two. So anyway, <laughs> a little bit of a rambling one here. That's, that's sort of what's on my mind going into a seven day enforced isolation. So we'll see how we go. Hopefully I can get the Skillshare course done and the Insight Timer kids meditation course done. And I'll you know, post about that and let you know about it. Um, I just want to remind you to grab a copy of the book Bound to the Wings of a Butterfly. That was the poem that started the episode. Um, the book that the poem from that started the episode was from, Bound to the Wings of a Butterfly. It's out now as a paperback, ebook, audio, and hardcover. The first book I've got out in hardcover. So, mm-hmm, super sexy. <laughs> grab a copy, give it a five-star review. Let me know which poem you like the best. And if it inspires a poem, send it to me. You can reach me on my website, ZacharyHuffinPhillips.com or on social media at Zach P. Phillips. I can be found everywhere. I also want to suggest that if you like the podcast, give it a rate and review and share it with someone. It really does help to to boost and promote and lets people know what we're all about and can start up a conversation around mental health and all those other things that might be hard to start. Just like, hey, check this out. Let's have a discussion about it. So anyway, have a good one and um, yeah, stay safe. <laughs>